0: Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles, and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. hello there welcome to the soundstage insider podcast my name is jamie and today we are interviewing declan lowney he is a comedy director and he's worked on i'm gonna say it some of my favorite ever shows (laughs) i'm talking father ted ted lasso little britain alan partridge to name but a few He is a hilarious guy, very, very talented director, really, really nice person too, as you'll hear very shortly. And we get into it. We talk about how to direct comedy. We really drill into Ted Lasso, the global phenomena of the past few years. He has directed a bunch of Ted Lasso episodes across all three seasons, including the finale, which is quite the responsibility, and we talk a little bit about that. Okay, so let's not string this out any longer. You don't want to hear me talking about this. You want to get into the interview, of course. So here it is, my interview with Declan Lowney. What was the first entry into comedy like? Was that always something you were really passionate about doing? What was your first foray into comedy?
1: Um, Well, let me give you a long story longer. Um, I grew up in a small town in Ireland... Uh, It was a seaside town. My dad had a furniture business. I was one of six. I was the second youngest. So there was an element of trying to get attention quite a bit. Um, But I felt there was a thing. And my brothers, I had three older brothers who were all really witty and funny. And I so wanted to be like them. And at at the dinner table, at the tea table, there would be so much witty banter going on between them and my parents. And it was something that made us all laugh a bit, but it's something I, I aspired to. And in school I would try and do impressions of the teachers and stuff like that and got a nickname as Clowny Lowny because I could (laughs) be counted on to do something really stupid in class and get in trouble. And so I enjoyed the attention seeking. I enjoyed the making people laugh thing, but it never occurred to me that that's something I could harness uh, professionally. Because in parallel with that, um, my uncle who had travelled a lot came back home uh, from one of his travels and he had a Super 8 camera and he set up the Wexford Miniature Movie Society that's the name of the town I was in. And he made a, a vampire movie. <clears throat> it was an hour long. And he employed a lot of local people to be actors in it. And I was just enchanted by this whole thing going on. It was like Hollywood had come to Wexford. And the newspaper, the local newspaper described it as such. You know, my uncle with a little super camera, a tiny tripod and a cassette recorder recording dialogue. And I was transfixed and captivated by the whole thing. And when the film was finished, I wasn't allowed to see it. I was only 10 or 11, you know, Um and it was pretty gory. And I remember they had borrowed sheep's entrails and he'd done something <laughs> like it, blah, blah, blah. It was pretty gory stuff. But I remember he hired the town hall and he had it projected on a big sheet and sneaking in and seeing the way people were enraptured by this thing just completely gobsmacked to see their own town and people they knew up on the big screen. And I was just captured the whole bump bit and uh, he got bored with it after that because it was quite hard work in making a feature film on Super 8 in 1970. And I picked up the camera and started fooling around making little stop frame animation films and entering competitions and getting a bit of notice and feeling, oh, this is something I could do professionally, maybe. And around that time, also, there was a local pharmacist who set up a cine club for people who wanted to make films, and he. That was actually a proactive thing where you'd go along every week and you'd learn something new and you'd t- make films for competitions and stuff. And so the whole thing had bit by the time I was 16 or 70, I knew I definitely wanted to be making films. Didn't know what ads as a cameraman or director, didn't really understand the different functions. And I started applying to Irish TV because there was no film schools in Ireland, they hadn't been invented. And Irish TV seemed like the only place you'd get a proper job. And I'd worked freelance as a runner in the business for a couple of years running around, making tea, working in a cutting room and I eventually got into Irish T V as a trainee in the film editing department. And film editing was a brilliant way to learn about storytelling and what elements you needed to tell the story. I mean it was mainly kids magazine type shows and and documentaries, but you saw that the essence of storytelling and how a director hadn't shot what was necessary sometimes in order to create the story for the editor to, to give the editor the elements. So it was a fascinating way to see how it worked and how it didn't work. And I worked my way up through the ranks and they made me a film manager when I was 22. And every four or five years they pick a bunch of staff and they, make them, they train them as producer directors. And I was lucky enough to get on the training course when I was 23. And I trained as a producer and director and by the time I was 24 I was directing live entertainment shows, kids' Saturday morning shows, that sort of live volume TV. And I kind of knew I wanted to do something in comedy, but um, I, that was where I was stuck in the short term. I was good at doing music because uh, a lot of kids' shows have live bands and stuff. So I got a reputation for being good with music. And they Ireland won the Eurovision in 87 and we got to present it in 88. And they gave me the gig of directing it. So that was my huge break at Irish TV. So I was 20, I'd just turned 28 and then I was doing a live three-hour broadcast to 300 million Europeans or something. Um, and... <laughs> And um, I figured I'd probably had enough of Irish TV. Uh, you know, they didn't really do drama. There was very little comedy, so I moved to London. And after a while, I pushed and pushed to get into comedy. My agent got me a couple of comedy interviews, and the second or third gig was Father Ted. So it was wow, like a Baptism of, uh, of Fire. But just talk about you know a, an amazing show at an amazing time, and it was the right. It was the right combination. I'd met Graham and Arthur, the two writers of Father Ted for their previous show, a show called Paris with Alexis Sale, a sitcom about a left bank painter in 1920s Paris. And I didn't get it. They didn't, they, the producers didn't think I was experienced enough, so they picked somebody else. And then they wrote Father Ted and this time they saw me and said, we need an Irish director, this is an Irish subject. It needs an Irish sensibility. And I loved what they'd written and it just got on really well. And. They felt they I was somebody they could work with and collaborate with rather than a director who was going to turn up and tell them. It was their second TV gig and they were very raw. And I think there was something lovely about the energy of all of us learning together. That's a fascinating
0: journey. <laughs> it's all, all over the place, really. Was the fact that you tried a whole, uh, worked in a whole bunch of areas, does this really help you when it comes to your directing work? The fact that you know what it's like to be in the shoes of all the other people or a bunch of other people on the team. Do you think that helps
1: you? Uh, I think growing up through the ranks and literally growing up in Irish TV, You know, I, I've been in there when I was 18, I came out when I was 28. I think you know, growing up in front of everybody and seeing what everybody does and appreciating the contribution everybody makes on the crew is so important. Um, and I mightn't have got that had I gone the film school route, not that it existed, but I think that is something that film school maybe doesn't give you that practical, working literally in every single department and seeing what everybody else does to contribute. One other thing happened, OK. About two weeks before the Eurovision Song Contest, uh, a journalist who the Irish Independent had called up and said, could they interview me? Because I was a young director. I was trying to turn Eurovision around. I was trying to give it a whole new vibe, a new feel. I felt that the music wasn't important enough and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it was an interesting story. And um, the day came for him to do the interview and nobody from Irish TV, from the press ops came with me. They just let me go and sit with this journalist for an hour. And I kind of told him what I really thought of Eurovision not quite appreciating that he was going to print every word I said. So I ridiculed the whole thing and said the whole thing was just an excuse for TV executives all over Europe to go on the piss-up for two weeks, you know, wear brightly coloured, you know, brightly rimmed sunglasses. It was just, there was a type of Eurovision executive that flooded to these events and I, from having been in many of them, I, I got the hang of it. And it felt, I felt the music just wasn't important. The songs were a bit of a joke. So I kind of laid into the whole thing and this guy printed every word and there's quite a few expletives in it and it looked terrible. You know, the headline was F this effing thing or something like that says Eurovision man. I mean, it was just, you know, a 27 year old shouting his mouth off, shooting his mouth off, um, shooting his feet off. I mean, I shot myself in the foot. Uh, there was uproar on Irish TV. A lot of the crew said, why should we work on this if the director doesn't believe in it? It just looked terrible and that went into print just as all the foreign delegates were arriving in Ireland. So RT had to do a huge, (laughs) a huge operation to sort of to to make it all good. But the producer of the show brought me around to every department head attached to Eurovision and I had to apologise. And as a humbling experience and as a learning experience, uh, it was brilliant. I learned so much from doing that. And humbled myself massively in the process. Yeah, I can imagine that was humbling. <laughs> so that I was better to just get out of R. at that point as well after the year. The year, well, it was a success. Uh, I won the Irish Television Award that year for some of that. But uh, yeah, it just I'd, I'd burnt my bridges and it was time to go. So yeah, when you when you came to London, did you have anything lined up? There was a show on Channel Four called The Tube, which was a, a the the yeah. premier British music show, and near the end of its time, I didn't know it was going to be the near the, near the end of its time. Jules and Paula they swore at six p.m. on a live link, uh, Channel Four did a live link at six o'clock before the show, which doesn't go out to ten or eleven. And Jules said "Groovy Fuckers" in the link, and it went out live, and there was a huge uproar about it, and the show was pulled. So the, sh- the tube was cancelled because of that. But Channel 4 wanted another music show and wanted the same people behind it, which was a bunch of people at Time Teens Television. They said, can you come to London, call yourself something else, and we give the contract to make the show, and we're going to call it something else. So that show existed and it was called Wired. And weirdly, there was a shortage of young, vibey music directors in the UK, and Eurovision aired, and everyone saw that and thought, let's have that guy. So I was poached uh, from Irish TV to join Initial TV and we made a show called Wired and that was my entry into UK Music TV and I stayed in music for three or four years after that before I started doing comedy.
0: And so I do want to talk about Father Ted real quick because (laughs) like I said to you earlier it is so important to me. I have so many questions, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I would love to talk about Dermot Morgan a bit. Um, but were there any overriding memories when you first started working on that show? I think you did something like 17, 18 episodes, right? So, you you know, you did a lot of work on that show.
1: Yeah, I did the first two seasons and I did the Christmas special. And then I left to do a movie and the movie collapsed.
0: Right, Yeah so let's start with Dermot Morgan Then he was such a tragic loss he you know he he died very young and father Ted was huge at the time I think I remember it vividly like the third or fourth season was airing I think when when he died
1: no, he, he died the day after they recorded the last episode they wow in studio on Friday night he had a, a a Friday and he Saturday evening had a small party at home and had a heart attack at dinner oh. so what was Dermot like to work with um well I knew Dermot so Let's rewind from Father Ted to Irish TV uh, and i just gotten into Irish TV and I was 19 and there was a I used to love hanging around the studios at night and the audience shows would be going on and there'd be live shows going out live on air and you could sort of sneak in the back door and watch and there was a show called The Live Mike, presented by Mike Murphy and it was a live one hour entertainment and variety show with some comedy in it from 8 to 9 o'clock on a Friday night and I would stay behind every Friday and sit and watch and Dermot was always the guest he was, he was a regular running comedian on the show. And he had a character called Father Trendy, who was uh, a, based on, on a priest who used to write a column for the Sunday World, and I can't remember his name, but I think he was dubbed Father Trendy. And so Dermot's, Dermot's character was called Father Trendy. And he would turn up on the light mic with a guitar and he'd sit on the panel and sing a few songs. And then he'd call people out for stuff and he'd have a little a parable about God. And it was just hilarious and very, very funny. And that you know, at home watching the same show was Arthur Matthews and Graham Linnan, who were also kids at the time. And they're watching Dermot and that became the genesis for Father Ted. You know, it was written very much with Dermot in mind, particularly from Arthur's point of view, because he'd grown up with Father Trendy. So Arthur very much got Dermot in mind. And I got to know Dermot as I stayed on RT longer. I got to know him. And when I became a director, they saddled me with a really ancient game show called Jackpot which was on Irish Irish TV in the 60s and I had to revive it and I met Dermot the presenter. It lasted one season, might have been too funny (laughs) for them. But uh, so I'd worked with Dermot, we had a kind of, we had a fondness for each other and we had a, a, you know, we had a, we got on. So when he came time to pitch for, uh, for Father Ted. Obviously, he got the job straight away, but he felt in me he had an ally on the inside. He felt there was somebody there who'd look out for him because he was so new to the whole, you know, having to do a weekly sitcom, having to learn your lines, having to turn up on time, rehearse every day for day, four or five days, you know, work with other actors. Or as a stand-up, he wasn't used to that sort of thing. So there was a lot for him to learn, and I think it really helped him that he had uh, an ally on the inside. So you said you worked on the first two seasons of of Father Ted, so
0: obviously you know it's funny because it's hilarious, but were you aware that it was going to have such an impact? It it was pretty rock and roll at the time, right? When it was going out, people reacted positively to it?
1: No, I mean, Channel 4 were were great. I think they ran it twice the first season. I think they ran it once and then ran it again pretty soon because I think it hit people and people going, what the fuck? Uh, And... And they commissioned season two and I, we were actually in the West of Ireland shooting season two when the BAFTAs happened and we got a nomination which was very exciting. But I think, I, I don't think we quite appreciated um, what we had until the BAFTAs. I mean, the, but we won the BAFTA I'm trying to remember the timeline though. I think when we won the BAFTA for season one, we had just started shooting season two and the confidence boost that gave us and particularly gave Graham and Arthur with their writing and their whole approach to Ted and how far they could push this guy and how far they could push the character and the characters and the zaniness of the world. They got huge confidence from that and I think that's why season two, it kind of went like that, you know, in terms of the, the madness and the craziness of it all. Season one, by comparison, when I look back on it, it is very, very raw. You know, we we were a bunch of people not quite knowing what we were doing. Uh, We were all kind of first timers. The location stuff was shot in the West of Ireland in November and December when like the song barely comes up and if it does it kind of goes, <laughs> nah, can't be our and it goes back down again. So like our, our, our shooting days were incredibly short and by 2 o'clock in the afternoon you'd have to get the HMI lights out and stuff like that. And suddenly everything starts to look lit because we were shooting in a hurry, we didn't have time to finesse all those things. So it has a, a very crude, amateurish feel about it for me season one, but it's kind of part of what made it so funny and the, the, the funfair sequence at the end of episode one, you know, the tunnel of goats, all that stuff. Yes. The, the impromptu-ness, the, the madness of all that and shooting it in like what looked like hurricane winds. That's all real. We didn't have the ability to generate those winds. We really were shooting in, in howling wind and lashing rain. So th- there was something very raw about that. And season two, you know, like I say, the confidence, the budget was more. We changed quite a few things on the set. Uh, it looked much better. It looked much slicker. Uh, And then we made the Christmas special, which I adored, but the Christmas special really was two half-hour episodes that were kind of butt-joined together and never quite felt like one cohesive hour. I'm not sure it's an hour-long format show. I think that show works as a half hour. Then when season three came, I was offered a movie at the same time, and I felt the movie was a better career choice for me. But sadly, the movie didn't happen. I was in Ireland with my movie falling apart while Father Ted was shooting down the road, which is a bit embarrassing.
0: I could talk about Father Ted for the rest of this episode, but I won't. I'll, I'll save it because, uh, you know, I, I know it's not as well known in this country, at least as it is in the UK and Ireland. So let's talk about comedy in general and, and directing comedy. How does directing comedy in particular, and we will steer this towards uh, Ted Lasso shortly, how does in general directing comedy differ
1: from directing drama? and Or how do they intersect? Um, I've not really directed straight drama, so it is a harder thing to answer in some ways here's the thing about directing right I never went to directing school and the directing tuition I got on Irish TV was very much focused on how to shoot a four or five camera live setup there was very little single camera working with actors type teaching. And I was always a little scared of actors and a little in awe of them because they were this kind of unknown quantity. You, you, know, you knew what your cameraman did. You knew what the sound guy did. They had a piece of equipment that they brought to work. But actors turned up and they just did something. And there was some sort of alchemy and magic about acting that I was a bit freaked out about. And then I started to realise, particularly in comedy, that if you cast the right people, they do most of that heavy lifting for you. You know, if you've cast the right actors and the script is great, they'll make it sing. If you've cast actors who maybe don't have the comedy thing and they kind of make it heavy work of it, then you've cast wrongly. So there is something definitely about putting the right people in there. But also in comedy, it is possible for an actor on the set to go, do you think if I said instead of that, that might be funnier? If I swap that line around, so I put the thing at the end, and sometimes they're right and no one else has thought of that moment and you do, yes, that's brilliant, let's do that. Or how about at the end of the scene if I did this instead of that? Or can I come back in and look for my glove? It's a Coogan thing. Um, but that'd be really funny. And I don't think you would do that in drama. A drama, an actor would never go. Hmm, would it be more serious if I said it this way? Would it be more dramatic if I said this instead of that? You know, that just you know, the, the the playwright, the author has written the stuff. You just go and perform it. But with comedy, there is a live, organic thing about it that once you hear what everybody else is doing, the person has the last line could say something different and would make the whole scene funnier. Yeah, and I loved that. Oh, that thing that how do we get capture that thing? You know, and and if. If you take forever shooting a comedy scene, I think you'll find your actors go off the boil. I think there's something about shooting comedy fast and getting it done, moving, 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 keeping the energy up that helps the comedy. So they're the things that I've learned is that comedy is fluid and I work mainly, you know, a lot of the comedy I do is with the people who've written it and are performing it like Jason and Mm. like uh, Steve Coogan. Chris O'Dowd, you know, they're the writer, performer, and they hear something in their head a certain way. And so it's happening on the set and they can hear an actor that, or person over there. I don't like them, but the saying that that thing doesn't make any sense. because And they know that stuff so well. And, and again, that's a comedy, a comedy timing and comedy. There's a rhythm thing in comedy that sometimes people don't hit. And I love when Jason or Steve would hear that and spot that and go, well, there's what's wrong with that. And here's how we fix it. I learned so much from those people. You know, they're so, so clever and to be around them, you have to learn something from them. But you also learn that comedy ultimately is so collaborative. There is no... I mean, I guess Jason will always have the say on our show and Steve would always have the say on his movie. Yes, they do have the final say, but there is there's plenty of room for people to contribute that input And they're there with me helping shape that and accept that one and not take that one. That's not the right idea for now, but that's great. Let's do that later. So I think that that collaboration is hugely, hugely important in comedy. And with Coogan, I I learned that he never stops writing the comedy, even after you've shot it. He's adding things for ADR. He's adding lines that you hear off camera on ADR when we go to mix the movie. They're constantly shaping and reshaping the gags and rewriting. It never stops
0: you've worked, I mean, you mentioned Steve Coogan, you know, obviously we talked about Father Ted and Ted Lasso and you've worked with some incredibly, you know, people with funny bones, right? I mean, I, I think of people like even like Jeremy Swift and people in like that in Ted Lasso, they're just, you should put a camera at them. They're funny, right? They're, there's something about them. What about when you're working with dramatic actors, can they learn those chops? Is it, or do they try too much to be funny? Like what? Do you have to be born with it, would you say, yeah. to be a comedic actor?
1: Um, it's a tricky one, that, because I think dramatic actors sometimes in comedic roles try to act funny, and I don't think that works. Mm. If, if the script's right, you know, the, the funny stuff is on the page, and then all you got to do is, is act it and perform it. And if you're trying to make it funny, that's probably going to kill it. It's already funny, so all you got to do is not play it funny. Uh, yeah. And I think funny actors get that better than non-funny actors who then try to make it funny. I think people like you, Jeremy Swift and people like that know to let the words do the work. It's all there on the page.
0: So if you find it funny on set, is it therefore going to translate to an audience? Is there an inevitability about
1: that or... Is it still somewhat mercurial, what really translates? I, I think it depends on the context. You know, dialogue can be very funny when you hear it, and a bit of slapstick can be very funny when you see it. And I I, I love laughing, and I do laugh on the set, and sometimes I get in trouble because I laugh during a take. I'm <laughs> aware, but I've tried to... A, I think the performer likes hearing somebody laughing and when we're rehearsing it and the crew are all laughing I absolutely love that. I love when you bring the crew in to watch you know you block a scene with the actors with nobody there then everybody piles into the room and say here's the scene so everybody gets to see one run through before you break it down into shots and work out where everything goes. But usually there's laughter, and there's laughter at that point. You've that's a very good, you know, a very good sign. And you know, we're going to then spend three hours shooting that scene. So people are still laughing and smiling at what they're hearing after three hours. Is a really, really good sign. So I think that laughter thing is important. I think the, I think the actors love to hear the crew laughing and love to know that it's landing with the crew. Yeah, that was going to be my next
0: question, actually, was, you know, once you've heard a joke like two or three times, it it's like, haha, it's not very funny anymore. So when you're shooting a take multiple times, it must be kind of hard to keep that perspective. Is this? Is this still funny? Like- it is.
1: That's why, you know, it. it you know, if someone's going, yeah, I think that guy in the background, you know, might have looked at the camera like briefly. And, you know, fuck it, it doesn't matter if what's going on here is really funny, then we've got it in two or three takes. But, you know, that's... That's what I mean about shooting fast. You just got to do it and move on and move on and move on. But going back and agonising over no oh, that light, maybe if I tweak that. You know, it's, it's DPs are frustrated by this, but comedy isn't a, a DP's medium. You know, the DP tends to be a little overlooked in comedy. Uh, we just want to make sure we can see everybody's face and they're in focus. I, I mean, there's more to it than that. But you know, yeah. what I mean? it's it, 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 it tends not to be a photographic medium comedy, if you like. Um, I kinda of get a hard time over that day. Um, um <laughs> But it is about speed and and not agonizing over shit that's not important. Yeah. And it is, you know, being a comedy director, it is about knowing where to put the camera. There's two sorts of gags. There's visual gags and there's dialogue gags. And dialogue gags, you know, there was a thinking that you cut to a two shot and the two people said the funny lines to each other and it played best as a two shot. But in a two shot, you know, you are seeing profiles. If you want to see people face on, you've got to do over shoulders. So you've got to cut between them. And I think a lot of comedy does play well in in cutting because it's so fast, you need to see their faces. But also sometimes it's funny to see the reaction sooner than the person who's saying the, set, the funny line has finished. Sometimes it's better to see the reaction a beat or two later. So playing with those, the timing of that stuff in the edit is really where you can make stuff funnier. And I think you gain extra comedy from that. But the other type of gags, the visual gags, it's about where you put the camera, and what the camera sees when the funny thing happens. But if the camera is a bit too far there, you don't notice that thing that made that funny thing happen. Well, you tripped over that guy's foot. But I can't see that. But put the camera there, then I can. It's it's just it, sometimes it is knowing where to put the camera. So that's yeah. that's comedy directing, knowing where to put the camera and shooting lots of reaction shots.
0: <laughs> okay, simple as that.
1: Got, I mean, Ted Lasso, the, the big scenes in Ted Lasso in the locker room. It's full of cutaways. It's full of people reacting, turns, looks, smiles, all that stuff. All the locker room scenes, full of that stuff. It, it's really important to get all those reactions.
0: So you mentioned there the importance of editors, and I've spoken to a whole bunch of editors recently. For some reason, they've all kind of come together. And the editing process is really just such a critical part of the mm. process. It's probably the most critical point, right, where you can craft whatever it is that you're working on. So how how collaborative are you with the editors? Do you sort of leave them to do their thing, and then you review what they've done, or are you giving them
1: instructions? Are you getting in with them? How, how does it work? It's it's different. Uh, so on British shows, we tend to make sixes. Father Ted was six episodes. Little Britain was six episodes. You would tend to be director of all six episodes, and then you would edit all six episodes. So you prepped six episodes, shot six episodes, edited. So that's probably a twenty-four week run. So you spend six months doing a six episode vlog. Over here, we tend to do two two episodes at a time. Then there's another director. Then there's another director. Then there's another director, and. The way American directing works, the showrunners look after the edit. So you shoot your episode and on the last day you've gone. Now about a week later the editor will send you the first assembly and you can feed back notes to the editor and then they'll make your tweaks and send you another cut and you feed back notes on that and then you never see it again. Then the showrunners get at it and they tweak it and cut it. And sometimes they leave it exactly as you had it. Mostly they'll be taking stuff out to get it out of time. You know, Usually an episode is maybe three or four minutes over length when you deliver it. So on shows here, the, you as director, you are less involved in the edit than I was on my shows in the UK. However, on Ted Lasso, and because the last episodes went on for so long, I was back here in Los Angeles while we were editing. So I did spend a few days with Melissa, the editor. But, you know, I knew that once I handed over, Jason would then sit in there with her and he would take, you know, he would take another 10 minutes out of that episode because it was so long. And he will change things, you know, he will change stuff where he feels maybe the emphasis of a scene was wrong, or there's a funnier take, or there's a funnier way of telling that gag. So that end of things is slightly taken out of your hands, but that's just the way it works. And it has to be for just the, the scheduling of things, the way it works.
0: Yeah, there's much more content. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. So you mentioned the difference between American productions and, you know, UK and Ireland productions. So what what other things? I mean, when you're shooting, is, is there just like a much bigger budget, right? The, you know,
1: craft services is bigger, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> nonstop food, that's the, that's the big thing. American shows of nonstop food. Um, yeah, I mean, it was brilliant to, you know, most of what I've done in my life, that British budgets are small, even when it's a big budget, it's still small. So you, you do get used to knowing how to spend money. And so the vision sometimes is a bit small. You know, if i got a street scene, if I ask for more than 15 extras, I'll just be laughed at. But if I turn up and I'm prepping an American show and we're looking at a street scene and I mention 15 extras, I get laughed at for the other reason. Because um, it says way too few. So, you know, they will say, you need 75 extras here. And I'm going, great, let's have it. So, you know, it's fantastic to have money to spend on things so you can make stuff look better. And I think coming from Bit TV, as I have done, I think we're good at making the money... Uh, go further on screen. I think that's part of the reason why American producers like to work with British directors. I think we've got a bit more to say because we're more involved with setting up and running our own shows um, and we're good at spending the money. I mean, we're good at being you know careful how we spend the money. Spending less. Spending, yeah. Less, spending less, yeah. <laughs> but it is, I mean, Lasso is a big and complicated show to shoot, so it needed money. You know, the BBC could never have funded Lasso because it's just too big. You could never spend that much money on a show. Yeah, well, that's
0: a perfect opportunity to dive into Ted Lasso a, a little more specifically. So you've directed episodes across all three seasons, right? You know, first, second, third. And you directed the finale. So yeah. was that something you asked for? Were you
1: offered that? Like, how did, how did you get the finale episode? A complete... It was uh, me getting the finale was a complete fluke. So season two, Jason asked me to be a producing director which meant you direct more episodes than anybody else, which is great. But you also help the other directors. So, you know, a director comes in for a, it's like a five week booking on NASA. So You get two weeks to prep, three weeks to shoot. But sometimes the director wouldn't be able to finish all their elements before they had to move on to something else. So if there were days or scenes missing, I would pick those up when they'd gone. Season three, Jason asked me to do that again, but I couldn't because I'd just moved my family back to Los Angeles. We come in 2019 you know, trying to do this for a few years. Then COVID happened, we had to go back to the UK. Then we couldn't come back here because we were green. We were not green card holders we weren't allowed in for a year and a half. So I just moved everybody back here. And then he said, you want to do season three? And I just couldn't face the upheaval again. But uh, he said, how about directing the first two episodes? So great, I was booked in for two months for January and February to do the first two episodes. But a few days before I was to travel, they called to say Jason felt they weren't ready to start and he wanted to push the shoot three weeks which was the right choice because they weren't quite ready to go and there's nothing as bad as starting to shoot when you're not ready. But it meant I I couldn't move with the dates because I had another show. I do the Big Door Prize. I was doing that for Apple uh, right after Ted Lasso. So I couldn't move my dates. So I had to withdraw. So he said, how about doing the last two instead? And I mean, it's uh you know when the show as popular as this ends the last episode will always have uh, a huge a huge a huge following and so it was fantastic to get to do the last episode instead yeah i, I can imagine
0: so as the show progressed you know like, like i say you worked on all three seasons the first season obviously you had no concept of how it was going to blow up right and it was one of the earlier shows on apple anyway so how did your approach change as the seasons progressed or did it change as the seasons progressed
1: and um, so, I mean, season one, it was a bit like for the Ted, you know, we had no idea on season one that we were making something that was going to be loved and adored and revered by millions of people. And so we were kind of, you know, it's a complicated show to make and they were figuring out how to make it. The only way to figure out how to make a show like that is to figure it out as you make it. So there was a lot of discovery on season one, a lot of, oh, fuck, right, we shouldn't have done that, we should have done that. <laughs> oh, shit, OK, how about doing that? So th- that brings with it a degree of chaos. I think by season two, and on season two I was involved the whole way, all 10 or 11 months through, that didn't happen because somebody was there to help shape all those things into a logical order. We've seen how we got it wrong in season one, so let's this time shoot four episodes, then shoot the football action for those four, let's shoot another four, or whatever way we broke down, I can't fully remember, but I know we were able to bring new structures to it all. But apart from that, there's no desire on the part of the creative team to change anything. I know the blue and red colour in the locker room. One of our DOPs, David Rom, wanted to change the tone of the red because it was a little bit too like the red in their skins. And when people stood in front of the red, it made it harder for him to grade the colour of their faces. And so we changed the colour by the tiniest amount. But that, honestly, that triggered so much alarm back at base and everyone was going, why do we need Don't change anything. Don't change a thing. It works. So we successfully managed to change that. But that was the tiniest, tiniest change, and very little else changed.
0: Yeah, so you got this winning formula. Everyone was like, just don't fuck with it. Like, yeah. yeah. So th- this show, it really came along at the right time, right? It was it was everyone's, like, COVID binging show, and it was our their sort of good place show. It's a really interesting mix of action, humour, heart. How do you marry those things into one show in a way that isn't awkward or clunky. And I know that's not, that's a kind of difficult question to uh, to ask and answer.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I don't know what the question. Is. No, I do. I, I'm not quite, <laughs> I'm, the thing is, it's, it's, you know, it's written down and in, in the writing they've gone from, I'm really laughing at that, to, oh shit, Keely is broken hearted. Oh, oh, uh, oh, Jamie. They kind of work that sh- stuff out. And so that is what you get given and it works. But you know, when you're making a show like that, you don't know the the power of that when it contrasts with this next scene until you shot the two scenes and you put it together. And that's when you go, Fuck me, that's really powerful. Yeah. You know, it's on paper and you may not get it. But so all you're doing when you're directing it is filling in the gaps, is creating the content that will, so all those bits join together. And then when you join the bits together, that's when you go, Fuck me, wow. So it's very simple in a way, but it is it, it is coming from the writers. All that stuff is on the page. But none of us quite knows how effective it is on enjoying all the bits together. Yeah. We knew we had something special, but I don't think we quite knew it was going to be that amazing. And had it not been for COVID, you know, had this show just come along when things were normal, I'd like to think it would have cut through. But, you know, it's hard to know, isn't it? There was so much stuff out and there was nothing like this, but it might have just got lost. You know, there's so much... What's the Seinfeld thing? No hugging, no learning. Um, and yeah. was was the exact opposite, wasn't it? Lots of hugging, lots of learning. And so it was very anti the conventions. You know, a lot of comedy is cruel, isn't it? A lot of comedy is a bit mean. And this was comedy where nobody was being laughed at particularly. There was no but of the jokes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I asked, I asked
0: sort of my community if, if they had any questions, and I've got a couple of questions here from the community, so you can blame them if you don't like the questions. Uh, <laughs> Lisa Leonard asks, how was he able to get all of the football scenes to look amazing when, as I understand it, only a few of the actors had real football
1: skills? Good question. Um, I would say that all the actors, I don't think we doubled anybody in season two. There might have been one or two stunts but for the most part everybody's doing that for real and Phil Dunster Jamie Tart he is fantastic at taking a fall and making it look like it really hurt and that's actually a character thing as well that Jamie does sometimes go down make like he's really hurt but isn't really so Phil's a good player Danny Rojas I think Danny I think Crystal was a professional player who turned an actor uh, yeah. to be a good player they're all pretty good players basically but they we, we rehearse so the football scenes are blocked in advance by a football person who works with our third AD Dan and Dan and this trainer guide. they take the players who are involved to another pitch and they rehearse for a day or two so all those players have worked out beforehand where they're going to fall how they're going to fall I don't want to say too much about the blue screen end of things because it is complex but when we the green screen and things but when we shoot the games they're shot on an empty field with the green screen wrapped the whole way around it and all the stadium stuff is put in afterwards so we have the players we have the lines and anybody who's close we have those people for real but the crowd are all Uh, put in afterwards we have shot crowd we shot hundreds and hundreds of crowd individually as tiny little figures and they're all placed in the stadium I mean we shot hundreds of them and they're replicated to make 50 or 60,000 whatever it is but the players do the stuff for real but we do cut around things to give people time to recover or get back up and there are times when perhaps the ball might be moved in post-production
0: Right yeah okay so John Duffin asks was the apparent chemistry amongst the cast there from the start? They felt that there was a tonne of true love amongst almost
1: everyone. It never felt sappy or forced. I, I would have to say it is true. The vibe and the love between the cast is very real. Theo Parper, casting director, did an amazing job of pulling in such a diverse range of really interesting faces and talents to make that team up. And obviously Jason will have been across all the casting as well. But when you've got an actor like Jason who's, who's the boss on the show, you know, none of those actors are going to turn up and be difficult. No one's going to give you a hard time. No one's going to be a bit, hey, you know, everybody's there going, fuck me, this guy's in charge. He's really good at what he's doing. Let's not, you know, you don't don't play up in front of Jason today because basically it keeps everybody in shape. Um, So there is definitely a thing that trickles down when they see somebody like him turning up. He's on his, he knows his lines, he knows where he's got to stand. He knows how to do his thing, but he's always there and bright and chirpy. That brings everybody, that elevates everybody. You know, people know there's no bullshit. There's not going to be any room, no tolerance for fucking about. Everyone's there to work and have a good time. And people did have a good time. Plus the people making the show have a really good time. I mean, there is a fantastic atmosphere on the set of Ted Lasso. And I think that comes across on screen. I've been on people's sets where there's barely a word being spoken, where the atmosphere is pretty tense. You can just tell this heavy shit gone down. And I think you can see that on the screen. You know, there have been times when things have gone wrong on a set and maybe get, people get a bit shouty one day. But I can see that in the rushes. So for the most part, it's not like that. Lasso is a lovely atmosphere and a wonderful set. I think that comes across in what we do as well.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, I've got to let you go. So I'm going to leave you with one more question. What is your advice for those looking to get into comedy directing? And I I understand that it's different now to when you started. But um, what would what would your advice be?
1: Well, it's kind of easier and it's kind of harder, isn't it? Because you know, picking up a Super 8 camera and buying a cartridge of film and shooting a thing and lighting it and editing it and putting sound out, It was so complicated and now, you know, with your phone, you can do all of that yourself. You don't need anybody else. You can be your own director, sound man, DP. You can do anything with an iPhone and it's never been easier to put something together and then put it out there, stick it on YouTube and get people to see it. The only thing that's harder is that there's a lot of people doing it and you've got to have something very original to say. But I do believe if you have something original to say and if you have an original voice and a funny idea and you're able to demo that in a three minute or a 30 second film, that that's a great way to get your foot in the door. You know, the studios, the producers, everybody needs scripts. Scripts are at an all time premium, you know, and funny, funny scripts are always at a premium. So if you've got the ability to write that and can showcase it somehow, I kind of feel you will get seen, you will get listened to. Perfect.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. That was fantastic advice and, you know, great to hear behind the scenes of some of my favorite shows of all time.
1: <laughs> so I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much, Jamie. I, was, I, I loved your questions and i and thank you for being such a fan of everything that, that begins with Ted in my family. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Any other Ted projects coming up that you want
1: to? Well, I've <laughs> reveal? got a son called Ted. Our middle boy is called Ted. You found out my wife was pregnant the day Dermot died. And I, I didn't want to call him oh. Dermot. But uh yeah, so that I've got a Ted Lowney who's now 23, 24. I'm just following oh, wow. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Take care, Jamie. Thanks. Love to meet you and well done with your podcast. I keep listening. Thank you so much for
0: listening to the Soundstage Insider podcast. Special thanks, of course, to Declan Lowney. My name's Jamie Muffett. I'm the host and producer of the podcast. This has been an RPS Audio production. Please follow us on social media, Soundstage Inn on Twitter and Soundstage Insider on Instagram. And I'll see you next time.